You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. You guys can be seated. Well, good morning. morning. It's good to see you this morning. Um, Thank you, um, Joseph, Denise, and Gabs, um, for leading us in worship. Um, So so I just, I'd like for us to go to the Lord in prayer um, before we jump in. Father, we praise you this morning. Goodness, I'm so thankful uh, that the songs that we just sang are true. Thankful that we have hope, confident hope, because of who you are. We praise you this morning because you are faithful. Lord, as I reflected on the circumstances of my life and the the history of my life, I couldn't help but think of some of the trials and different things people are walking through in this room, and just not only in this room, but in this city and in this state and in this country and globally right now, and, and really collectively for the last two years, um, many of our existence uh, is have been shaken in ways that they never have been. Uh, and if we're honest, there, there are lots of circumstances in our life that don't, don't feel consistent with what a loving God and Father would allow. And so, Father, I pray that you would teach us to trust. Father, I thank you for the truth that your word reveals to us about not only your sovereignty and your power, but your providence your providence and your working out your plan for your ultimate glory and our ultimate good. And so, Father, this morning I pray that you teach us from your word. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. If you have your Bible this morning, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 3. It was going to be verses 1 through 6, but it's just going to be verse 1, and I'll explain that more here in just a second, but I'm glad that you're here um, with the rest of us mere mortals that didn't go anywhere for spring break. And so, um, I don't know how you are, but I usually pray for rain and frostbite for those that are at the beach while we are here. So, but I, I am really glad that you're with us as we continue our journey through Ephesians Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1 says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And that's it. That's our verse for today, but but I want to give you a little bit of of what's going on here. Um, There is a really, really, really hard break Verse 1 is Paul, verse 1 of chapter 3 is, is Paul starting to pray for the Ephesians. And, and really it reflects my prayer life. I, I don't know about your prayer life, but it reflects my prayer life often where I start off with great intentions and I begin to pray and I say, Dear Lord, thank you for this day. And then it's like squirrel, right? You're sort of derailed, but his derailing is holy and divine, But it is a derailing. 
And, and so what we're going to see in verses 2 through 6 is he's going to go, hold on, before I pray for you, I want to make sure you understand more of what I've just told you, specifically of the mystery of the gospel being not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile. So this prayer actually picks up in verse 14. He says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of, of, of Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles, I mean, there's no verb in the sentence, it's just hard, hard cut off, and he sort of raises his head up and goes, Hey, but wait a second, let me make sure you understand. So that's what's going on. The Holy Spirit, in these first words, pushed him to be sure that they understood. Now in the outline, some of you know this, some of you didn't. Um, I, as I said, I intended to go through verse 6 this morning. But I was derailed with verse 1 in a little bit different way than, than Paul was. I, I just kept reading verse 1 over and over and over again. And I kept thinking, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Like, that's so simple, and it makes sense, and we would salute it and sort of amen it. But, but what's really going on in Paul's heart and mind? Paul's not a prisoner of Jesus. Paul's a prisoner of Rome, and he's being hunted down by Jews. What's this perspective? Brothers and sisters, there's something different about Paul. There's something different about the way that he's thinking, considering the circumstances that he's in. So I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and on behalf of you Gentiles, has, has a lot of backstory to it. And I want us to take a second to walk through that. So we're going to start with this idea and this perspective of Paul. What I want you to hear this morning primarily, what I want you to hear is, is how Paul has this perspective, how Paul has this peace, how Paul is able to praise the Lord in the midst of his circumstances that are less than desirable. Okay? What we've done since we've been in Ephesians is anytime a, a doctrine has surfaced, We've sort of taken some time to explain that doctrine and understand that doctrine. And one has surfaced this morning that I think is worth our time. And so first I want us to look back at some history in the book of Acts chapter 21. So if you want to turn there, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 21. And we're going to see that, that Paul, and, and, and maybe be reminded if you know this already, that Paul is a prisoner. Here's why he's a prisoner. He's a prisoner because of his commitment to God's call to reach the Gentiles, which the Ephesians are, Gentiles, with the gospel. The Jews hated Paul because of his association with non-Jews. Even the Christian Jews were confused and didn't understand how Paul could be okay with planting churches, and not only planting churches, but pastoring churches that were made up of Jews and Gentiles. So the whole reason Paul's a prisoner is because of his commitment to reach the Gentiles, which the Ephesians are with the gospel of Christ. Well, in Acts chapter 21, Paul has just left Ephesus. 
and it's a pretty dramatic story. As he leaves Ephesus, they, there's this scene, um, as, as it's explained in the first part of chapter 21, where Paul is on, on the beach, and the elders of, of the churches of Ephesus literally fall at his feet, weeping, asking him not to leave. But Paul feels compelled and prompted by the Holy Spirit to make his way towards Jerusalem. Pick up with me in verse 10. And it says, While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. What they're doing is, is, is they're trying to keep Paul from going on into Jerusalem. Because they don't think Paul fully understands the hatred that awaits him. And so he says, this is what the Holy Spirit says. Whether the Holy Spirit actually said this or not, to be fair, I, I don't know. I don't know if this is just a ploy to keep Paul from Jerusalem. I don't know. But this is their approach. In verse 12, when, he heard, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? Listen to what he says, friends. Think of this perspective, this peace. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, that's Paul, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Well, he gets to Jerusalem, and when he gets to Jerusalem, this is a paraphrase of verses 17 through 26. He has a meeting with James, and essentially this is what James tells him. Hey, Paul, um, the Jews hate you, so you need to know that, all right? And, and, and so what we want you to do is we want you to go into Jerusalem, go to the temple, and do some really Jewish things, all right? So team up with these folks, these other Jews, go to the temple, follow the rituals, do all of the normal Jewish things, which keep in mind... Paul was formerly Saul, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As far as pharisaical righteousness, he was the man. So he knew what to do. Paul concedes. Paul, Paul says, okay. And, and, and for seven days, is that not just something to consider? For seven days, Paul goes and does Jewish things in the temple. Pick up in verse 27 of Acts 21. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Now, this isn't to pray. Okay, just make sure we're on the same page. Sometimes this language is, hey, they laid, laid hands on them and prayed for him. This is more like throwing hands. All right, this, as, as opposed to laying hands gently on him. They physically assaulted Paul. All right. 28, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks, those are Gentiles, Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. His, his seven-day hiatus to, be a, to do Jewish things so that he might win some, you remember him saying that, it didn't work. They hate him. Verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him, which is an interesting connection because there's, 
there's no doubt that Trophimus is reading this letter. Trophimus knows that he single-handedly is one of the reasons that Paul is imprisoned. The Ephesian with him in the city, and, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, the word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Verse 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Now I'm going to stop there. I want to go back to chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Like literally, he is a prisoner because of his obedience to the Lord and his call to take the gospel not only to the Jew, but also to the Gentile. And so what's happened in Acts is Paul is arrested by Rome because he's a Roman citizen. So this is what Rome's doing for Paul. Because Paul's a Roman citizen, they say, y'all can't just kill him. He hasn't done anything wrong. And so he has to go through the proper steps, and we have to try him. And if he's found guilty, then you can go on with your killing of Paul. But essentially, Paul is protecting, I mean, I'm sorry, Rome is protecting Paul as a Roman citizen. And so that's why he's imprisoned. And it's not a normal imprisonment. He is in what is sort of a house arrest. But in that house arrest, he does have a Roman soldier with him all the time. And history says more than likely he was chained to this soldier, at least at night, in some cases, all day long. So Paul, while writing everything we've read in Ephesians thus far, is hunted by the Jews, imprisoned by Rome, Yet he sees himself as a prisoner of Christ and he sees this purpose to be for the salvation of the Gentiles. And by the way, we've, we've made this point clear, like more than likely everybody in this room is what? A Gentile, a non-Jew. Does it seem odd? I mean, do, do we just read these stories and go, oh, man, he was just a superhero. He was just a Christian spiritual superhero. I mean, I, I wouldn't argue with you on that statement, but, but I, I paused this week and I thought, hold on, time out. Wait a minute. Like, what's different? Like, like this seems so odd. What, how does he have so much peace, friends? He is, he's been imprisoned unjustly. I mean, this isn't justice Paul's receiving. This is injustice that Paul has received. There's nobody like, like uh, you know, um, outside of his house where he's imprisoned, rioting, chanting his name for him to be released, screaming about injustice. Paul's not even doing that. Paul is surrendered to something, to someone. More than that, Paul has a belief. Paul believes something about God that I think a lot of times I don't. And it's this. This is the doctrine. It's the doctrine of providence. A general, and this is very general definition of this doctrine, is this. Providence is God's governing and preserving of all things 
for His glory and purposes. God's governing and preserving of all things for His glory and His purposes. And all things, by all things, I literally mean all things. Personal definition, God's providence is God's loving provision for His people as He guides them through life, accomplishing His purpose in them. God's loving provision for His people as He guides them through life, accomplishing His purpose in them. How many of you ever heard this phrase or said this phrase, everything happens for a reason? It's true. I mean, it's actually true. Now, not, not that that's something that we receive um, you know, gladly at certain times in our life, but just so you're clear about what providence means, like it, it, it actually does mean that. Now, I know, I know Carrie Underwood made a lot of money by asking Jesus to take the wheel, but I want to let you know, as, and this is no shot at her, it's just her theology. She's just a country singer. He's always had the wheel. There was never a time that his hands weren't on the wheel. Providence is the practical dimension of his sovereignty. Sovereignty and providence are different. Sovereignty is his position. His authority, His power. Providence is the practical execution or acting out of that position. It's Him actually doing what's necessary to bring about His sovereign plan. God isn't merely a passive observer of what's going on. He hasn't just spun this thing up like a top and sitting back and eating popcorn and watching what happens. Rather, he has designed history to achieve a particular end, and he directs history so that it will surely reach that end. Now, what I want to do is I want to show you some verses. We're going to have to go through these pretty quick. So this is what the rest of this time is going to look like. I'm going to show you some, some just, and, and y'all, look, so you want to know how much there is about providence in the Bible? John Piper just wrote a 730-page book called Providence with 3,000 Scripture citations. Okay? There's no way I can even come close to touching God's providence in the 35 minutes that we have left here. But what I want you to see as we read through these scriptures, what I want you to listen for as we look at some of these stories and we reflect on Paul's attitude and heart is, is what is it? Like, how is there peace in the midst of any circumstance? How is there praise in the midst of any circumstance? And I'm convinced from what I see scripturally, and I fight with you to believe this and apply it to my own life. I fight today. I fight in this very moment to fully believe and, and, and try to grasp and bend my knee to what I'm about to teach you. And so I don't stand before you this morning as somebody that goes, yeah, God's sovereign and, and his providence is what it is. And I'm like, okay with every ounce of it. And I understand it. No. One of the most frustrating questions I get from people is this. So what's God doing in your life? I have no idea. 
Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. It's providence. All things work together. That's sovereignty in action. All things work together. Proverbs 16, 9. The heart of a man plans his way. Amen. And if you're old enough, you know. But the Lord establishes his steps. That's providence. Next slide. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man. Amen. And if you're old enough, you know. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. That's providence. The lot is cast into the lap. And just to be, this is modern day rolling the die. Just how sovereign is he? How engaged is he? Well, according to Solomon, even the roll of the dice is his decision. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Brothers and sisters, that's providence. Psalm 33:11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Brothers and sisters, that, that's providence, and that, that's providence for every generation. He hasn't taken a generation off. Next slide. Daniel 4, 34 and 35. Of course, there's context around this, but listen for providence. Listen for peace and listen for praise. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes, and there's a really good story behind this, to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, that's providence, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation, that's providence, and He's being praised for His providence. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He, that's the Lord, does according to His will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him what have you done it's providence Matthew chapter 10 29 through 31 Jesus says are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. That's providence. In Job 38, Job gets to a place in his life where it's understandable. Job, Job questions the Lord. He's lost everything. He's lost everything but his own life, literally. He questions the Lord, and this is the Lord's response. And I'm just going to skim through. I encourage you to go back and read Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. 
Job, who, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Job, have you ever commanded the morning since your days began? And caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? To answer your question, Job, have you ever comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, the Lord says, if you know this. Job, have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Just barely opened for us yesterday, didn't it? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hell, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? Job, can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Job, can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Job, have you ever considered who provides for the raven its prey and when its young one cries to God for help and wonder about for lack of food? Job, do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill and do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch, bring forth their offspring and are delivered? of their young, and he goes on and on and on, and brothers and sisters, that's, that's providence. How far does providence reach? It has no limits. There's not a blade of grass. There's not a bird of the air. There's not a fish of the sea. There's not a grain of sand, a particle of dust. There's not one cell in our bodies that are made up of millions of cells. And there's certainly not one human being that God is not sovereign over. Well, this plays out in stories as well. And again, we're looking for peace in the midst of circumstance. Paul has peace. Paul is able to praise because Paul sees that there's actually purpose because God is providentially working in his life. And not just in his life, but also in the lives of those around him. Well, a familiar story to you is Genesis 45, and this is the story of, of Joseph. And so, uh, basically what's happened to Joseph is he's been ousted by his brothers. Now, he needed a, P, a, a PR man in typical little brother fashion. Um, he has a dream, and in his dream, all his brothers bow down to him. And those of you that are little brothers or little sisters, I mean, if you have a dream where your older siblings all bow down and worship you, uh, you're going to tell them, right? Of course you're going to tell him. Well, he tells them, and what happens, and there's, there's obviously a lot going on here, but his brothers make up this elaborate story, sell him off into Egyptian slavery, and make up a story and go back and tell his dad that he's been killed. They even bloody up his coat that his father had just graced him with. They couldn't stand the fact that he was the favorite. They hated him, and, and they sinned against their father. They sinned against their brother, and they sinned against their Lord. Well, uh, Joseph didn't exactly have an easy life. If you're familiar with the story, there were certainly some ups and downs. But where he finds himself is second in command. That's where we are. Second in command because of his ability to interpret some dreams, and, and as we'll see, because God's hand is clearly in his life. But now there is a famine, and his brothers need help, 
And in Genesis 45, starting in verse 4, that's where we'll pick up. There's a confrontation with he and his brothers. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph. Now listen to this. This is important. It doesn't seem important, but it's important. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. He's acknowledging their sin. But watch this. Verse 5, I don't even know if I understand enough about it to even be addressing it right now. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. All right, so he, he acknowledges their sin, but he doesn't harp on their sin. He doesn't beat them up because of their sin. He doesn't just continue on them about their sin, but also notice what he says at the end of verse 5. For God sent me before you to preserve life. In verse 4, he said, you sold me into Egypt. In verse 5, he says, God sent me. Verse 6, he says, For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which will be neither plowing nor harvest. Now look at verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8, So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He had made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph twice says that his brothers sold him into Egypt, but three times he says that God sent him there. Which is it? It's both. Both are true. Unless Joseph is just flatly contradicting himself, he must mean that his brothers were not the ones that had the decisive hand in his sending to Egypt. They did exercise their will in sin by him getting to Egypt. They made real choices. But God's choice and God's act is ultimate. Their real choice was a part of God's real plan. And even though the doctrine of providence isn't mentioned here, it's clearly seen and it's clearly far from irrelevant in Joseph's mind. And I think we see the immediate practical implications of Joseph's belief in God's providence in verse 5 when he says, Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. <laughs> what? And why? Why does he say that? Well, he says because... God sent me here, and don't miss this, to preserve your life. God used their sin to save their own lives. God's activity is the reason Joseph and his brothers need not to be distressed. Did they really sin? Answer that for me. Yes, they really sinned, and that cannot be ignored. But God had purpose for their actions, and that has to shape their response, and it has obviously shaped Joseph's response to what they have done. And so Joseph urges them to focus more on God's good purposes. Please don't miss this. Focus on God's good purposes in the situation and not their sinful actions. Man, that's a slippery slope. It feels like it, doesn't it? It feels like, oh, so just overlook the sin? Oh, so this means I can just do what I want to do. 
It's a misapplication. It's a misunderstanding. And please don't go that way. That's, that's not the point. The point of this story is to see mercy. It's to see mercy. We shouldn't go, oh, I can sin and God's still going to be there to catch me when I fall. No, we should go in spite of our sin, in brokenness, in spite of our sin, God still saves. And so they are to go in Genesis 45 verse 9 to report to their father Jacob that God has made Joseph, not Pharaoh, <laughs> not Potiphar, God. God's the one that made Joseph Lord over Egypt. Verses 10 through 11 of chapter 45, we see the result of God's action will be the salvation for the entire family. Then I want you to look at chapter 50, verses 19 through 21. Man, this, this sums it up. This sums it up really, really well. And it says this, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. Remember, we're looking for peace. How does God's providence, like, what does it produce? It, well, one of the things it produces is it produces peace. That's why Joseph can say, hey, don't fear, for I'm in the place of God. Am I in the place of God? Verse 20, as for you, listen, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. It's God's providence. Joseph wholeheartedly believes that his steps are ordained and directed by the Lord. All of them. And to be clear, he's taken some steps that he would not have chosen to take. He's been through some things that if it would have been just totally up to him, he would have avoided. But listen to me, friends. God's providence is not primarily concerned with our comfort. He loves you. He's got you. But he's not primarily concerned with us being comfortable with what he walks us through. He's primarily concerned with his glory in our ultimate good and what it looks like to have peace because he's sovereign and because of his providence and what it looks like to praise him because of his providence is to trust that. You're not going to connect all the dots of God's providence. It's not a doctrine that's meant to be understood. It's meant to be believed and it requires faith. And so I, I believe that this doctrine is enormously helpful and practical for all Christians. I, and I, I, I may step out by saying this. I, I think it is the most important doctrine for us in regards to Christian living. Outside of the doctrines of the, of the cross and sin and the gospel itself, once you come to know Jesus Christ through, um, uh, through the gospel message, I think the single most important doctrine for us to embrace in order to live the life that God has called us to live, one that brings Him glory and praise and us peace and actual comfort, is the doctrine of God's providence. We are prone to forget that God is ultimately behind what's happening to us. I have been in my life really quick to give lip service to the truth 
of his providence. But a lot of times my emotions and responses are as if he is as surprised as I am by the situation or has nothing to do with the situation. I think too often the conviction that God is sovereign and that humans fulfill his plans has virtually no impact on our lives. And, and this may seem harsh to you, but I, but I actually believe that living this way, and I'm confessing to you that I have and fight not to still today, it's actually a form of atheism that excludes God from His own creation. It excludes Him. If it excludes Him from His own creation, it excludes Him from your own life and your personal history and story and future. We suffer from a providence complex, and I want to be really, really tender here because I know that some are going through really difficult, painful seasons. And there's nothing actually helpful about someone walking into a situation where there's real hurt and there's real pain, there's real loss, there's real suffering, and just going, God's in control. Chill out. I say this with compassion. But I think that we are quick to celebrate the Lord's providence and salute Him when, or talk about His hand in things when life is good, when the cancer is removed, when the money appears, when the car is fixed, when the promotion comes, when the baby's healthy. When the kids are obeying, assuming your kids do that. And I say a providence complex because when things are bad or things are confusing, there's three responses that I've noticed in my life, and there are three sinful responses. The first one is to just be angry at God because I do believe He's sovereign. I'm mad. What is this? Or there's a response that says, maybe you don't have as much control. Maybe you just have control over certain things and like the main things, but not control of all the things. But then Matthew 10 sort of just eliminates that when it says there's not a sparrow that falls that the Father is unaware of. Job 38 actually annihilates that as well when he says, hey, um, are you the one holding the storehouses of snow and hail and telling the lightning where to strike? Did you lay the boundaries of the ocean? The answer to that for us is obviously what? Well, no. No. And so there's this threat to go, I'm, I'm mad at what you're doing. There's this temptation to say, well, maybe you're not as in control as, as I thought you were. Or maybe even worse, you aren't in control at all. And you're just reacting just like we are. In Joseph's story, what we see is that there was one act. There was one act. He was sold into slavery. But there were two different wills at work in that one particular act. In Paul's life, how does Paul say, even though he's not a prisoner of Jesus practically, he's a prisoner of Rome, he's being hunted by the Jews, how does he have peace? How is he able to praise? And it's because of his perspective and his understanding, much like Joseph's, of God's providence. 
he does not feel like or believe that he is experiencing anything or has experienced anything or watch this, will experience anything that is outside of God's providential care for his life, regardless of what comes his way. That's why he can say, if I die in Jerusalem, so be it. So be it. I'll die with peace. I'll die praising. And it's because of God's providence. One more story. I got to hurry here. In John chapter 11, this is going to wrap it up. In John chapter 11, um, we see Jesus being dealt with in a similar way. And I'm going to read this really fast. In John 11, beginning in verse 45, I want you to listen here. This is after Jesus has raised Lazarus. His earthly ministry is on the ground running, like he's wide open. And there's a big stir around Jesus. He's caused a lot of uh, ruckus. And there's a lot of noise around him, all right? In the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day have come together, and they're like, we got to do something with Jesus. Like, he's causing too much of a problem. There may be a revolt. People may turn against us. we got to do something with Jesus. So many, verse 45, many of the Jews there who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. That's in Jesus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Verse 48, listen, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. You see the fear. They don't want to lose their power and they believe that we got to kill this man so that we'll be saved. And then Caiaphas, verse 49, Caiaphas is an unbeliever. He does not believe Jesus is the Messiah. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand, listen, that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And watch what John gives us in verse 51 when he says, He, speaking of the unbelieving high priest, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Caiaphas said, you're right. We have to kill him so that we are saved. His purpose in killing Jesus was so that they wouldn't lose their power. But John lets us know the purpose is for Jesus to be killed. But what you mean for evil, God intends for good. And you're actually right about this, that it is better for one man to die than for the nation to perish. Judas betrayed Jesus because he was motivated by money. The Jewish authorities did not like the fame that Jesus was attracting and receiving, and they were threatened by his following. The Roman authorities essentially just wanted the Jews to stop arguing, and they were fearful of a revolt, and so they arrested Jesus. Satan wanted to put an end to the ministry of Christ and his attacks against the demonic kingdom, and there were many, many other actual sins that led to Jesus' death. But Judas was chosen to be the son of perdition. 
was the plan all along for Jesus to come to his own and for his own not to receive him. Jesus willingly went to the cross to atone for the sins of his people in obedience to his Father. It was actually the Father that sent Jesus to the cross to fulfill his promise to save his people. It was the Holy Spirit that sustained Jesus on the cross so that the effective atonement would be achieved in Christ glorified. We have all these reasons for Jesus' death on one hand, and then the ultimate primary reasons for Jesus' death on the other hand. And as Isaiah 53 says, it was the Father's will to crush him. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, I think I have that slide, Zach, do I? No. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, I think it sums it up nicely when it says this. This is Peter preaching. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Could he be more clear? This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But watch this. And then he goes on to look them in the eyes and can honestly say, you crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. Two wills, one's ultimate, and it's the Lord. And so in closing, how is this meant to apply? How is God's providence meant to apply to our lives? Well, first and foremost, we should see the purpose that it brings. The Bible does not answer every question we have about our suffering. But the Bible answers the most important question about suffering, and it's that Jesus Christ suffered so that our suffering doesn't have the final say. It doesn't. The enemy has already been defeated and will realize that defeat in the end. You're not going to have all your questions answered about why you have to go through what you have to go through. But you don't have to look to those things to define you. You don't have to look to those things because those things, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, they cannot ultimately and finally crush you because Jesus Christ was crushed in your place. The doctrine of providence brings peace. You know, a beautiful door to walk through. A, a beautiful door for us to walk through is Romans 8, 28. To know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Again, I'm not saying it's one we bust through excited and strong. It might be one we crawl through weeping and weak. But it's still nonetheless a beautiful reality and truth of who our God is and his care for our lives. Third, it brings praise. We can rejoice. In fact, Job in chapter 1, verses 20 and 22, it says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. Not exactly what you'd expect to hear after he arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground, right? How is Job able to praise? Listen to what he says. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Ultimately, blessed be the name of the Lord, and in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 shows a perspective of a man who is fully on board and believes in God's providence in his life. Paul knows that his time in jail would not strike a crushing blow. 
to God's purposes in his life or for God's purposes in the life of the Ephesians. In fact, his time in jail would advance God's purposes, allowing the believers of Ephesus to see God's purposes, allowing us this morning to see God's purposes and to bring us peace and to cause praise in our hearts. Providence is meant to bring peace and cause praise because God has a purpose. Two really important things Providence tells us. And, and, and the first one is this, and I say this with kindness. Providence clearly tells us that we are not the center of this thing. It's not revolving around us. It's not revolving around our comfort. It's not revolving around what we want. It's not revolving around our glory. It's revolving around God's ultimate glory. But it also tells us this and brings peace and causes praise is that we, we, like you, as an individual, you matter to God. He sees, He hears, and He knows. I can't make this truth be one that you embrace. I can't. It's just hard. It's deep. But I pray this morning that the Holy Spirit causes you to embrace this reality about who the Lord is and what He's done, what He's doing, and what He will do in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. I pray in these final moments that You would work in our hearts what only You can. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can stand for worship. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.